Good morning. Let me just for a moment, let's lift our hearts to heaven. Spirit of God, would you take your sword of the scriptures and cut into our hearts today? Help us be transformed by these words. The idea of love is so much bigger than any of us and so much beyond, so way beyond our ability to grasp. So let us be grasped by it, by you. We ask the Christ our Lord. Everybody said, amen. Apostle John, in this particular text in 1 John, actually mentions loving 27 times in four pages. <laughs> Tiny little book, 27 times. I don't know if the Beatles got their inspiration for all you need is love, but it, this is definitely carries that kind of idea that this thing of love, all of us have a sense within us that we want it, has a sense within us that we should be expressing it. And, and yet sometimes it's one of those things that seems to elude us. The kind of love that John is speaking about in this particular passage is, is captured in the Greek word, many of you have heard it, agape. And this idea of agape is a very specific kind of love. It's a giving love. It's a love that sets value on what it's loving. And it's, it's, uh, it gives without condition, a love that's based on the person loving, not necessarily what's being loved. That somehow the person loving sets this motion of moving and giving and valuing this other. It's a a all-in sacrificial kind of love. And John actually says in our reading that God is this, that God is this kind of loving, this self-giving being who values what God creates. Um, what he seems to be going for, John, in this particular, these writings, is that being a person of faith is really most about being a person of love. That, you know, you can believe all kinds of good things and we should believe good things and you can be faithful to all kinds of good things and volunteer and be a tither and, uh, and, and vote in ways you deem righteous, right? Uh, you may have a number of deep convictions that you're faithful to, to and all those things are very important. But what really marks you as a Christian is being a loving person. Paul echoes this in 1 Corinthians 13. Many of you have heard this. We hear it a lot of times in marriage ceremonies where Paul makes the statement, if I speak with tongues of men and angels, in other words, I'm connecting in my heart as a spiritual person and giving myself over, but I don't have love. I'm really just like a gong, like a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy, right? I, I can see things and the Lord shows me things. Um, and, and can fathom all the mysteries of knowledge, and if I have faith that actually can move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. John, again, points to Jesus in his gospel, John 13 and talks about the centrality of love from Jesus' perspective. And he looks at his disciples. I mean, this is right before he takes off, right before he goes to, right, to the passion and dies and that whole story that is the culmination of Jesus' life. He says to them, 
Hey, guys, before I leave, a new commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, that giving, that sacrificial kind. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. See, this is the true identity mark of a believer. Yes, we believe in our creeds and we hold our opinions on a bunch of things. I have more opinions than most. But this is the main deal. Love. I, I wish, honestly, that the main deal was um, pointing out the faults of others <laughs> and, and passing judgment because I'm so good at it. <laughs> but alas, that is not my job. That is not any of our jobs. This is a passage that uh, is challenging. It's, again, again, Jesus in the Gospel of John, he's talking about when he leaves. And it says in, verse, in chapter 16, starting verse 7, but very truly I say to you, it's good for you that I'm going away. Because unless I go away, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And when he comes, watch, he will prove the world to be in the wrong See, it's not our job to prove anybody to be in the wrong. It's our job to be open and loving so the Spirit can prove to them. And the way the Spirit proves that we're wrong is so much more gentle and engaging. He said, he'll prove about sin and righteousness and judgment. He'll prove about righteousness because I'm going to the Father and you can see me no longer. And he'll prove about judgment. The Spirit will. The impulse to prove to the world and to my kids and to my friends on Facebook that they're wrong and sinful is so strong in me. The force is strong. <laughs> I want to point out what is wrong and judge what is wrong in others. I feel so clear about it. I feel it's right and I'm good at it. But the Spirit says, the Spirit, Jesus says, the Spirit does that. We are to love people. And this morning, the lectionary throws first John at us with its 27 jabs. Love, 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 love. So from a totally pastoral perspective, I'm not trying to be an exodete this morning, theologically, I want to suggest to you five secrets. I thought there were four, and this morning I ran out, but it was actually five. That uh, to loving people that you can't stand. Okay. And um, I get a C in most of this, most of the time, C minus, sometimes a D. So I promise you, I'm not preaching as the great accomplisher here. These are things that are beyond us. So secret number one, when you identify a person that you can't stand, in other words, this is a person who's like that finger on the chalkboard person or uh, the person that, you know how some people can't stand it. How many of you can't stand it when somebody rubs a balloon? You know, there's some, right? Or my daughter, Alyssa, she can't stand it. We, we have these plates that when I put the fork in the knife, I go, she's like, oh. you know, she can't stand that. There are people like that to us that we just kind of cringe inside. The first secret, once you identify that kind of person, is put the face of Jesus on them. Because people are worth Jesus to God. And what we have to ask ourselves is, what are they worth to us? When I was learning this as a young pastor, and I, I grew up in a church where we liked to point out people's problems and where they were wrong and felt like that was just telling the truth, right, and rising up and being bold. 
And I remember when the spirit began to woo me into what pastoring was. And I, I was in a service one day and I felt like the Holy Spirit said to me, you're not going to draw people into a pastoral setting because they, you have the, all the truth. People are not drawn to truth. Truth helps people, but they're not drawn to truth. I felt like the spirit said to me, you've got to love people. And when people respond to that, they just innately know what love is. They know when they're being tricked or trying to be tricked, right? Most people have a sense of it. And if you'll just love people, I will draw people and then give them truth that will support their lives, right? So that whole idea of putting love first. And so I began to try to practice that as a young preacher, but I still had my moments of where I would get upset with people. And there's certain groups of people that I would, they would sort of, I would sort of react to when I would see them. And I remember sitting with two pastors in a restaurant one day and a kind of person walked in that sort of represented everything that irritated me. They were on parade with their bombastic kind of nature and their, all the stuff that they, I won't go into that because I'll sound like an idiot, which I was. But after I saw this guy kind of parading in and, and, and being what he was displaying, I looked at those two guys and I said something very disparaging to them. And we kind of snickered. I was very snarky. And right there, all of a sudden, boom, inside my heart. I felt arrested. I felt like the mood all shifted in me. And I heard these words, he's worth Jesus to me. What is he worth to you. And I remember stopping in that arresting moment and looking at those two guys and just feeling undone and said, guys, I, I repent. That guy's worth Jesus to God. I've not let him be worth, I've never let people like that be worth anything to me. You have to start by being honest about how you react to people in life. What do you see first? Do you see what the person does or how the person thinks? Or do you see the person? I mean, they're treasures to God. People are treasures to God. Psalm 139 says that God imagined people before they were in the world, that when they were in their mother's womb, God created them. Jeremiah talks about how before someone ends up in the womb, God imagines them. Paul claims in Acts 17 that, that God chose the exact time in history when people were born and the places in which they would be born. In other words, people you run into and I run into, their dreams of God come true. They're a storied people. They're people that God imagined to be here. And they ended up here. So how do we see them? Just by how they look, what they do, what they think? Or do we see them as treasures? We just read from our friend John. Whoever claims to love God and yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. And whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen Another way to say this is this. From God's perspective, the person you love the least in your life is the most you love God. This is not a good sermon. Secret number two. To loving people that you can't stand is all about taking up your cross. <laughs> This is Jesus in Mark 8. He says, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and he said, okay, 
Whoever wants to be my disciple, how many in good? Yeah, you must deny yourself. You must deny yourself. In other words, our relationship with Jesus doesn't mean we get to be more of ourselves. There's some way, particularly in this way of relating to each other, that we have to deny ourselves and watch. Take up their cross and follow me. Here, here's, here's the point. The cross is not the image of winning. The cross is not the image of being in control. The cross is the image of suffering, of losing, of being out of control. If you want to be a person who gets along with others, you have to be ready to suffer because the fact is we all make each other just a little crazy, right? There's something about the Cyclops that I like, right? They lived by themselves in caves and had one eye for themselves, right? But they were monstrous. And a lot of us, honestly, at our base core level are monstrous, and learning to live in with each other and in relation to each other is really not an easy thing to do. Love, the cross, empowers that. The cross in a relationship is not about making sure you get your own needs met. Instead, the cross is about a commitment to do what is right and to beyond that, trust God to meet the needs that you have. But you're in trying to meet needs. You and I are to run at people in order to meet their needs, not their wants. Don't get that confused. I mean, sometimes we have to say no. Not out of getting even, but just sometimes we have to say no. <clears throat> Something got in my throat. But here's the good news. This is Romans 5. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love, look at this, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Somehow our relationship with God, whatever those places are, coming to church, praying, spaces where you listen to text, whatever, whatever your spiritual life consists of, somehow in those moments, the Holy Spirit pours love into us. Why would that be important? Because then we can afford to be in relationships that seem to be one way at times. Because we, we can draw from. This is Jesus when he talks about, you know, someone says, you're sure, give him your coat also. What's he saying? You can afford it. You're not supposed to be abused, but you can afford people pressing on you and demanding more because you know the provider. You know, slap you in the face, turn the other cheek. Why? You can afford it because you know the healer. He's not encouraging physical abuse, and nor am I. I'm just saying that ways in which you, you get taken or feel like you're not being cared for the way that you need to be in a particular relationship, this is where we trust God first. Doesn't mean God, we have to think we'll never get our needs met. We will, but maybe not just the way we think and maybe not from the person that's doing that we're with at the time. God will take care of us. But the way that we can stay in there and we can, we can when we're asked to go one mile, go the second mile is because we know the strength in her. In other words, what he's saying is, you're different, Jesus is saying. You're connected to God. You have stuff other people who aren't connected with God don't have. You're going to be a different kind of people in the world. Light that dispels darkness. Salt that makes things taste good. And prevents rot, right? This is Jesus calling us. And it's all about this business of love. Secret number three. 
You're gonna get angry when you run into people you can't stand. That's okay, that's a given. It's okay to get angry. It's not okay to get angry with sin. Now, Paul makes this distinction interestingly in Ephesians 4. He says, in your anger, do not sin. How does that work? He said, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. In other words, don't let anger so dominate that it begins to define how you relate to people. Don't let anger get so prominent that the sun goes down and you're still mad and you're seething over it because you're going to come out of that doing things that will destroy Right? But you're going to be angry, and that's okay. It's natural to be angry. You need to name the offense. You know, this is really wrong. I can't believe she thinks that. Right? It's okay to do that. But don't let that turn into a space where you come out swinging. This is, again, that turn the other cheek space. This is where you're somehow somebody says something, you feel the slap on your face, and it stings. What's the natural thing to do? Slap them back. Come right back at him. And you respond out of the sting. What Jesus is saying, no, no, don't respond out of the sting. Sure, it stings, but respond from another place. Respond from the part of you that's healthy, from the part of you that didn't get touched by that sting, that part of you where the love of God's been shed in so that you have energy to respond that's different than the place of hurt. See, this is our call. Why? Because anger doesn't make things right. This is John again, or James rather. James says in James 1.20, human anger doesn't produce the righteousness God desires. In other words, getting mad on Facebook or getting mad at someone in an argument isn't going to straighten it all out. It's not what, it doesn't do it. It just agitates it worse. He, the, the idea here is learn not to react from anger. You may get angry, but don't react from it. The sting that you feel, don't react to it. Count to 10 or something. Find your, you know, go for a walk. <laughs> Take a deep breath. Pray in tongues. I'm a closet tongue talker. Find what works for you. James again says, just the verse before, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. In other words, what he's saying is process your anger. Be like a sloth with your anger. Let your soul be like a set of shock absorbers in a car that sort of absorbs the potholes that you bump into and the disappointments of life that come from others who make life suck. In your anger, watch out because anger always has the hint of the spirit of murder. I'm not making that up. Jesus said that. This is Jesus in Matthew 5. You have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And if anyone who murders will be sub anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that someone, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, the idea is lingering. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, their anger is so dominated they begin to diminish the person. Raka, which is to say, you fool. You idiot. You're stupid. Anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. In other words, you're inviting hell. You're invading evil into the relationship. You're inviting destruction. Making off or marking off someone as a fool is dangerous. It scandalizes. Scandalize means to diminish, 
to make them less the person. Jesus says it's a form of murder. It's the beginning of that trajectory where somebody would ever murder somebody starts with the diminishing of the human person. In the past few years, some in our culture think of calling people out with rude correction and diminishing words. They just think they're being real. I'm just telling it like it is. I'm being bold for the Lord. I'm taking a stand. But it's not. It's being mean, unloving, destructive, inviting the evil spirits. And according to Jesus, it's a spirit, part of the spirit of murder. Watch what you post. Watch what you say, how you speak of your relatives, of the people you work with. You're not a Christian because you believe the creed. I mean, it's good to believe the creed. But the way that you're a Christian, that people know, is how you love people, how you see them, how you respond to them. Not just the people that are like you, people that are not, that you can't stand. Secret number four. We get this one from David. It's the first Samuel cover story, right? You can read all about how David was connected with this guy. We don't have time to dig into it, but he's a younger man. He's serving this guy named Saul, and Saul had it out for David. He was jealous of David. He was out to hurt David. He brings spears to dinner with David. And as David's kind of chomping down, every once in a while, Saul takes a spear and throws it at him. This would make for a bad dinner. <laughs> and all of us, truth be told, at various times in our lives, have a Saul. Hopefully they're not in your own household, but we all have them. Either Saul over time was getting better with his spears or David was getting slower, but at some point David say, said, if I stay too close to Saul, I'm going to die. And so he fled to this place called En Gedi. And here's what's interesting. Even though he fled, David still loved Saul. And David still respected Saul. You know, most of us stay so close to hurtful people that we only leave when we hate them. Leave before you hate them. Back off why you still care about them. If they're too destructive, create space while you still respect them. Now, I don't know exactly what that looks like. Sometimes it's physical, sometimes it's emotional. Sometimes it's your expectations. But you have to find space in some destructive relationships. Loving people doesn't mean you let them spear you. And some people are really good at throwing spears. And in order to survive, you have to create more than six foot of social distancing. You have to set larger than normal boundaries. Sometimes you have to set up, I, I, I call it a people zoo in my own heart. You know, the, the, a, a zoo is a place you get to love wild things safely. Sometimes you have to love people in your life that are so wild and so destructive. You, you, you have to have the glass. You have to have the bars in order to come up close enough to see them without dying, without being hurt. So that means why sometimes you have to reach out to people and all you can do is write them a card or send them an email or maybe a phone call, but you can't get in the room with them. You can't have your kids in the room with them. And it's not because, see, some people do that because they hate people. 
Don't ever hate people and keep running at people because God can change hearts. And there's lost relationships that can be re-engaged with proper boundaries and accountabilities, right? But you don't have to run at those things. You do have to run at people. You don't have to run at what you imagine to be perfect. You have to run at loving people and let that come out in a discerning way. And then the last one, the last secret, secret number five. Watch for the burning coals from heaven. (laughs) This is Romans 12. This is Paul. I love the imagery. He says, do not repay evil for evil. In other words, again, don't slap, slap back. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Not what they deserve, because some people deserve bad things. But you don't. You're sacrificial. That you're going to be giving and loving even though they're being wrong. If it is possible, as far as it depends upon you, and sometimes it's not possible, live at peace with everyone. What does peace mean? Everything's appropriate. Everything's appropriate between us. Well, you can't do that with everybody because some people are just inappropriate. Right? But as far as it depends upon you, be moving toward people. Do not take your own revenge. When is this going to be made right? Well, it won't be by your hand. Don't let it be by your hand. You don't want to take judgment into your hand. Don't take revenge into your hand. He said, don't take it, but leave room for God's wrath. That doesn't mean, even though there's a beauty to it, that God will just torment them. Right? Get them, God. The Psalms are kind of a little funky in that regard. You know, so they, they talk about, God, destroy them. Let them be like the miscarriages of a woman in the night, right? Or let them be like the slug crawling across the hot pavement in the noonday sun, melting into the earth. (laughs) Beautiful texts. (laughs) I mean, there's a point when we read some of those, the reason they're in the scripture is because they give us words for how we're feeling. And we feel that way because we've been injured, we've been wounded, we've been wronged. And we have to give that voice. We can be angry. We just can't sin, which means you can't take that into your hands. But instead, leave room for God's wrath. What is God's wrath? Watch what it says it is. He says, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, here's what you focus on. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. That text bothers me because part of me wants to say if he's hungry, let him starve to death. Maybe God can prove to him then that he shouldn't have been my enemy. I mean, why if he's suffering and starving, maybe that's what he should see. Idiot, stop being my enemy, you'll be okay. Oh, but God said, no. If he's, if he's your enemy, if he's starving, take away the thing that you think was good for him. Feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. This is another way of saying, forgive people who are your enemies. Why? Because when you're in unforgiveness, you're in ungiving. If you're in unforgiveness with me, you couldn't give me a smile, you can't give me a conversation. If I'm in unforgiveness with somebody, I'm in ungiving. I don't want to bump into them, I don't want to call them, I, don't, I just want them to be banished in my heart and life. But forgiveness is for giving. Are you going to move toward the people who are enemy status? Give them. Well, what do you give them? Start with prayer. Jesus says, pray for your Enemies. Why? Because when you pray for your enemies, they won't be your enemies long. There's something that begins. You start giving to them. In doing this, he says, 
giving them food, giving them thirst, giving them prayer, whatever. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, again, if the imagery of a 21st century is you're pouring coals on somebody and burning them like in a torture thing, this is not, you can be wrong. What he's talking about is the fire of God burns away the stuff that makes us evil. Here's this evil person. You give to them and God can pour coals on them to burn away the thing that makes you think they're your enemy. God can change them. This is Isaiah kneeling before God and, and God's presence is there. And the, the angel says, he says, I'm an unclean man, I'm an unclean people. And the angel takes a tongue and picks up a coal and brings it to his tongue and purges him so he can be God's person. See, God wants to use us to change lives, to make people who we can't stand actually become people who we can stand. But the only way to do that is not by us fighting them ourselves, but by us giving ourselves sacrificially and loving them, even if they have to be in a zoo for a while, so that the coal of God can come and change them. And this is why he says in the 21st verse, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Only God is good and God is love. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with love. What if God's put those crazy people in your life on purpose? What if every time you run from them, you've noticed that when you go somewhere else, that same weird person's in your life, only this time is through another body. Maybe that's why you keep running into kinds of people that make you crazy. Because those kinds of people are actually God's gifts to you to deal with you and for you to bring life into places that don't have life? What if your life matters? What if your relationships matter? What if that's more important than whether you share a gospel track with four spiritual laws? What if this is the spiritual law, the law of love? What if this is what God wants for you? What if this is more important than our gathering here, that you're out there with people letting the love of God touch them? Okay, I'm done. So here's my appeal. Let's be peacemakers. Jesus said that these are the sons and the daughters of God. There's lots to disagree on, but there's nothing worth dividing over. So, who do you struggle to love? Who comes to mind, or maybe you struggle with a certain group of people, a liberal or a conservative, or people who look down on people? That's a big one for me. I, I look down on people who look down on people. It's just a holier sin. One step removed from that filthiness. I get this is hard, but it's so critical for us to run at love. St. Anthony, who's our patron saint in the diocese and in the order of St. Anthony, has 38 famous sayings. The ninth one is this. Our life and our death is with our neighbor if we gain our brother, we have gained God. But if we scandalize our brother, we have sinned against Christ. This is what John's saying to us this morning. Don't ignore love, he says. Repent. And 27 times, he says. Instead, love, 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 love. Love, 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 love.